So I'm, I'm brutally honest with myself about like the, the detriments to my own career. I spend so much time behind a computer, like if I don't actually work on it, my social skills deteriorate. Like that, that is totally a thing that engineers go through, you know? Carpal tunnel syndrome, that's like going to happen. Like the stuff is important to think about. I was in the elevator today and like, you know, the receptionist was asking me, oh yeah, what about, are you ever like worried about your eyesight? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to be like legally blind by the time I'm 60. But you know, they should make a parody movie. You know, you have legally blonde for lawyers, legally blind for uh, engineers and tech people, you know? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is powered by Z by HP, HP's high compute, workstation grade line of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of welcoming back Shashank Kalanithi. Shashank is the reigning iron analyst, a data analyst turned senior data engineer, a YouTuber that has now amassed over 100,000 subscribers, and most importantly, a good friend. In this episode, we talk about how technology can be one of the great equalizers for inequality in the job market, how he was able to 6x his income through this field over the last four years, and about his experience on the iron analyst competition. I've linked the full competition in the description below if you're curious about that as well. This was a great chat with Shashank. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Shashank, thank you so much for coming back on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Again, you're one of the very few people who has been on for a second time, which uh, you know is, is a great honor, let me tell you. Um, we obviously caught up at the Creator Meetup uh, a little over a month ago, maybe a little longer than that now. Uh, and I didn't get to sit down with you there. I definitely wanted to to get you back on. Obviously, there's been some some changes in your career, so I'm really excited to have you here to talk about your experience uh, with the with the creator event, with uh, your career, with your perspective move to a, a new state. And uh, I think we'll have a lot of fun here. Thanks, Ken. I'm excited to be here. And um, yeah, no, it is a huge honor to be on uh, the podcast for a second time. Our conversations are always really interesting. So. I'm ready to get to it. Amazing. Well, first, I want to congratulate you on air for hitting the 100,000 subscriber threshold. I know that happened a little while ago, but I think we all knew that it was it was destined to happen unless you just randomly deleted your channel. <laughs> um, you know, you're obviously providing such interesting and useful information. Uh, I'm interested in maybe how that's fit into your career as a whole. You know, you're, you're creating a lot of content and I'm wondering, you know, what is your onus? Like what's, what's the reason that you're providing such valuable information to so many people? So it's kind of twofold, right? Like you said, it kind of dovetails into my career. Um, actually funny story, it dovetails a little bit less smoothly, smoothly than people would think it does. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's because I teach kind of to, uh, people at a certain level. Uh, and then so like people that are like, you know, managers and stuff typically don't end up seeing my content, but I'm hoping to change that in the future and like, you know, kind of upgrade the content, especially because we've reached a length of time where people who are, who have been with uh, my channel for a while actually like have jobs or moving up in their careers. And so they're expecting more uh, advanced content. But something that has helped me a lot of my career is that I um, take on new problems and know, learn about like new Python libraries 
uh, and new data visualization libraries and stuff because I, you know, run into new challenges of trying to make stuff interesting for the channel. Um, and I get to meet just a lot of really talented people who uh, I, I learned, you know, a ton from, you know, you, Tina, Zach Wilson, uh, the Seattle data guy, just tons of people who know like a lot about their field. Um, and then, you know, there's also fun stuff like, you know, the iron analyst, which is um, as much as people might think that might be like an impractical thing, the general thought process of how can I drive as much value in as little time as possible uh, underlies the entire iron analyst like competition. And I think is the kind of core thought process that any successful corporate person has, uh, regardless of what your career is. Uh, if you if you are successful in corporate America, at your core, you're thinking, what is the greatest value I can like drive with the minimum amount of time, um, and trying to optimize for that to some extent. As far as why I started the channel, one was you know kind of just to put out some of my teachings over there, but two was because um, I noticed like in America we talk a lot about uh, inequality of opportunity, inequality of just you know like in general, right? Um, which I very much do believe exists. Uh, and, and I think one of the great things about the technical careers, software engineering, data engineering, uh, data analytics, data science, is that these are careers that are more meritocratic than others. Um, not every other career, but they're more meritocratic. Um, uh, there are definitely problems in the industry, not, not to say that there aren't. Uh, representation in our industry is still pretty bad. Uh, racial representation is pretty bad. Uh, gender representation is pretty bad. Um, but if you kind of like break it down, right, there are very, there are fewer barriers to entry in this career than there are in many others. Um, and, and there are fewer opportunities for nepotism than there are in other uh, careers. Like I have a um, friend of a friend who, you know, their father is like a judge. Um, the legal career, politics, uh, these are careers, um, you know, Hollywood, these are careers where, you know, nepotism is huge. So I wanted to use my platform as an opportunity to teach people, hey, you know, if you're struggling in life, um, there's a decent chance your struggles are because of a lack of money. Uh, and this is a great platform to make a solid to unbelievable income. Uh, solid as in if you're regular data analyst doing SQL and stuff, you can be making anywhere from 80 to 150K a year. Uh, unbelievable if you're a data engineer, data scientist uh, near the top of your field. You could be making an excess of five hundred thousand dollars a year, um, and it's an opportunity that uh, is theoretically open to everyone. You know, yeah, I, I think that technology in general is one of the great equalizers of inequality. Mm -hmm. You look at access to cell phones. I think there's some crazy statistic where the majority of the world's seven, eight billion people have access to a smartphone which I think is crazy. That means in the palm of their hand, they have access to educational resources on how to code, on you know data, data analysis, on almost any career that they might be interested in. And I think that digital careers where their work can be done relatively remotely, I think software engineering, I think data analysis, I think data engineering, a lot of these fall into that category are something that breaks down geographic barriers, but also breaks down educational barriers. Because from my perspective, someone can learn all of the relevant technical skills for one of these roles online for free. And what they learn if they're applying it correctly is just as good as what you're going to be getting in a classroom setting. You're going to have to be doing significantly more legwork on yourself. No one's going to be telling you exactly how to go about this. I mean, some YouTube channels, maybe like yours, are giving you more of a roadmap. But it's not the same hands-on approach 
like school. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is free. And if you pay a little bit of money, in theory, you actually can get a lot of hands-on yep. um, hands-on focus on exactly what you need, which in some ways could be better than school. I always thought it was really funny, you know, when I was in grad school, no one would use office hours, right? And when you look on YouTube, you look on these other platforms, that's what people pay for. Like people pay for consulting, they pay for office hours, they pay for these types of things. Who cares about the coursework? The coursework is replaceable by any anywhere on the internet. MIT but, places like half most of their curriculum, like the, the greatest engineering university on the planet is just like, perfect. this isn't what makes us special. Yeah. And, and to me, it was just mind boggling that I had access to these people for free as part of my education and no one was using it. Like in my mind, that is what you're paying for when you, when you do school, mm-hmm. when you do any of these things mm-hmm. uh, and having access to people online to, to answer your questions, having access to a bunch of creators that are willing to, you know, give their time. That's worth as much as a lot of these degrees or any of these things to me. I mean, obviously I don't personally uh, offer my time for mentorship or those types of things just because that's an issue of scale, right? If a lot of people are asking me the same question or something similar, I can make a video. I can do something that scales a lot better than me giving individual advice. Mm. Uh, I also, you know, as we talked about before, I've just have too much on my plate that I'm not able to, to, to do that as well as I could. But at the same time, if you're thinking about value times reach, which is how I view things, I would hope that through the scalable content that I'm creating, I'm creating significantly more value overall than just individually meeting with people. Mm-hmm. Because while the individual value might be a little bit lower, the reach is just so much greater. Sorry, that was a, a little bit of a tangent, but I, I'm just very like, I, I think we're very much on the same page about how how inequality is very present, but both of our very large focuses is on breaking down those barriers. And it's cool to see that we're in an industry where I think that that is, I wouldn't say we're on the forefront, but it's pretty close. Oh, 100%. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? Mm -hmm. So there's a great book, Bullshit Jobs, right? Um, It kind of talks about this very interesting concept. Um, it goes like it's way more in depth than like uh, what I'm going to go into. But like, long story short, there are a lot of careers out there where it is difficult to justify paying people more. Um, for me, those are the people I want to most. I mean, I want to help everyone, but I want to most help those people escape these careers that, quite honestly, look, I have a bleeding heart for people that uh, you know live uh, economically disadvantaged lives. But there are some economic activities I just I, I just can't get like wrap my head around like how can we pay people a lot of money to do these things? A great example of this. Yesterday I went into an undisclosed bank. Um, I don't want to say because uh, I'd like to be a, be a sponsor of the channel one day. But I went to an, I went to an undisclosed bank um, uh, and I signed up for an undisclosed credit card at this undisclosed bank. And this you know awesome credit card, you know, great perks and everything. Um, because I personally like talking to people, so I like going into a retail store if I can. And, you know, just interacting with people, even, even though I can do the exact same thing online. Um, and I, I, I keep running into this disappointing roadblock. Uh, you go over there and you realize that uh, technology has obsoleted these people's jobs without people actually knowing that. So I go in there and this person says, um, okay, we need to go through a pre-approval process. I wasn't pre-approved for the credit card. Like I was approved for the credit card, but I wasn't pre-approved. Um, pre-approved usually you have to have some like, you have to be like double the standards of like what you need to get approved with the card. Also like... 
getting approved for a card, you can get approved and you just get a high interest rate, which I don't care about because I always pay my cards like on time. So the interest rate just doesn't affect me. Um, but after that, this person couldn't get me the card. This person was like, oh, you have to go to the Undisclosed Bank's website and uh, sign up over there. To me, what's the point of that job then? Like, what is this person, like, what, what extreme value is this person uh, driving that we can pay this person more than 40K a year? Um, and, and that's kind of where I, I think the American economy has, or I think economies all over the planet, but the American economy has a lot of these jobs where it is very, very difficult to justify paying people more because the algorithms actually control everything they can do and say. Um, and I would like to give that person the opportunity Hey, like, you know, learn Python through my channel, learn SQL through my channel. It's all free. The most expensive thing I sell is five bucks on my channel. And that too, it's optional. Like I, I show the full guide and I'm like, if you want to, you can buy it in, in paper format. Um, and hopefully that person can like pick that up and like, you know, make a job where it is very easy to be like, oh yeah, we, we need to pay this person a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like they're driving, you know, extreme value in our company. Right. Um, there are a lot of service jobs like that. Yeah. Well, there's, that brings me. Well, it brings to mind one of my, well, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite books. It was a very good book. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Hmm. And the idea is that if you get so good at a skill that you're irreplaceable to your organization, your value goes up dramatically. They talk about this also in the four-hour work week by hmm. Tim Ferriss, where if you're irreplaceable, you have unbelievable leverage to take time off, to work significantly less, to do whatever it is. And that's twofold, right? You can get really good at a specific role better than everyone else to make yourself replaceable. But you can also find a job where the job is is very dependent on your skill and ability. So a lot of people talk about the idea of a, a 10x data scientist or a 10x mm -hmm. developer or whatever this is. And we talked a little, you brought this up a little bit offline, but there isn't in my mind such thing as like a 10x bank teller, right? Yeah. How, how could someone possibly be that much better at their job if right. their job is very narrowly confined? Like so where is your I, leverage to be the best, you know? Exactly. Um, in, a, in a way that matters. Sorry, you can, you can be the best. You can offer excellent customer service. And I've been to banks where they offer excellent customer service. And, you know, the best thing I can do is write a letter to the head office. Um, but beyond that, like what what, what is... Yeah, and this is not all service jobs, right? So for example, I used to work at Nordstrom. Uh, and Nordstrom, we have like retail people and they get paid commission. And that's different, right? Because I can go in there and I can be like, I want XYZ. And I've had amazing experiences at Nordstrom where like this person like helps me get exactly what I need. But at a bank where the products are very structured, approval is automated, um, the and, and and you can't overwrite anything. Did I ever tell you the story about how um, data science completely obsoleted the bank manager role? Like... Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, we're a little bit different in age. So you might remember this, but I remember back when I was a kid, right? So um, I'm, a, I'm a kid of the nineties. Uh, my parents would go into a bank and we'd spend a lot of time in banks, right? So in my mind, banks are this place you spend a lot of time in to get you know mortgages, X, Y, Z, right? Um, and it was because my parents like were doing all this stuff at the tail end of the 1990s and then like the early 2000s when a bank manager, this is before like computers just took over everything. A bank manager could approve or deny a loan. Um, and they could do it based on certain factors you give them. Oh, this person's a good member of the community. They have all these business things that show that they're like trustworthy. They kind of like look like a trustworthy way, which, you know, I mean, introduces all kinds of bias separately, but you know, um, it, it used to be a job that was respected on the level of a doctor 
or like a um, lawyer. Uh, I mean, depending on who you are, right? But a doctor, let's go to doctor. Insurance, yes. Yeah. Um, but now the, the, it's a glorified sales, sales role. You know, like, like a bank manager has zero ability to approve or deny anything at anything but the smallest credit unions because data science, your credit report determines everything. Um, you know, my mortgage was not determined by a bank manager. It was determined by an algorithm that, you know, the, the, the people at the bottom have no, again, it's a whole Andreessen Horowitz thing, right? You either live um, above the API or below the API, you know? This episode is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute, workstation grade, line of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high performance data science solutions. And I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z4 workstation. I really love that Z workstations can come standard with Linux and they can be configured with the data science software stack. With the software stack, you can get right to work doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine. Now back to our show. Well, that's another wrinkle, which I think is really interesting to look at is the amount of impact and control you can have in your work is something that I would evaluate an overall career on, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked about a bank manager, how much control do they really have? How much influence do they have to exert, you know, influence on any of the things that they do? As you mentioned, they're sort of glorified sales managers, but at the same time, on the other side of that, I think sales is a career that you can, ex- in some sales, mm-hmm. you can exert a lot of control over, right? Small for sales. Exactly. And so to me, I um, if I were to relook at my uh, career options, and, and obviously I like the one that I've chosen, mainly because I have so much control over the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And so software engineers, data analysts, data scientists, uh, even salespeople for that matter, even lawyers to some extent, depending on the law firm. You have a lot of ability to control how you do your work. And if you can do your work at a higher level through that control, then you can clearly differentiate yourself. If you don't have control over what's going on in your work, you have very little, not value, you have very, very little means to go above and beyond and to to prove that you're this irreplaceable person. Like hard work is only so much. Where you could be the hardest working, most innovative bank teller, and you're maybe 20% better. Whereas if you were doing that as a software engineer, a data scientist, even a lawyer or a salesperson, you could be 80, 100, 1,000x better. Which oh, is with crazy. a SWE, um, like software engineer, it's, it's even crazier, right? Because a lot of my friends who are SWEs, like they work four hours a day. So the ones that work six hours a day are actually like extraordinary engineers. Um, <laughs> Kind of the converse of what you're saying, but I think is also important. And this is kind of like my uh, Machiavellian way of thinking: is um, how much is how much is the government in your corner? Uh, and and this, for example, why you know why do doctors get paid as much as they do? Why do lawyers get paid as much as they do? Um, it's because no one can just you can't just get up one day and decide you want to become a doctor. Like like you literally cannot just do that. It, it ta- in the United States, um, it takes like eight years, eight and plus years to become a doctor, or eight years to become a lawyer. Um, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, what regulation in software engineering? Anyone can become a software engineer, right? The regulation that's on the side of people who work in, you know, data, software engineering, like, you know, I'm kind of using software engineering as a catch-all term for this, these professions, uh, is American visa law, if we're talking about America. Um, if America had open immigration, like we just, you know, let people immigrate here, uh, you know, obviously check people and stuff. Um, the number of people that would come in from India and China to like fill in these software development roles, it would, it would totally crush, uh, wages over here for that. Um, this isn't a political discussion as to the, you know, what immigration policy we should take. It's me explaining that 
one reason that the data science, engineering, these roles are paid so much is because the government's in the corner of we're going to heavily limit immigration and make it extremely difficult for people to obtain um, H-1B visas, permanent residency, um, and these other things that would drastically increase the supply of these qualified workers. The qualified workers, you know, they, they exist in the world. They just don't, they're not legally able to come here. Yeah. I mean, that's a hundred percent true. I think that that's something we see in wages in other countries around data science, you know, mm -hmm. in India, I think data science is a very well-respected role, uh, but it's not proportionally as well-paid as it is in the States or in some places in Europe. It, it's, it's a very interesting equation to look at, right? It's not uh, right. like a purely free market type of thing. And especially in the US, that's something that, you know, it's fortunately US citizens can capitalize on in a, in a very unique way. I mean, I wouldn't say we're getting um, disproportionately paid, but for the, for like the global economic system, yes, it is disproportionate. You look at like the Stack Overflow developer survey mm -hmm. and you're seeing, oh, you know, like data scientists globally, yeah, I mean, they're making a good living, but it's definitely not the, I wouldn't say overinflated, but like the, it's not proportionally similar to what we're seeing in, in the U.S. markets or in a lot of interesting Europe markets. And, you know, I mean, in America, it's because we have so much other stuff going for us, right? Like a lot of like global tech innovation, although it happens everywhere, more of it happens here for sure. Um, and, and there's more money flowing into advocating for that innovation from, you know, Wall Street. Um, but that's like a whole rabbit hole that maybe I'll start a podcast one day talking about that stuff. Like the the politics behind software engineering, data engineering, stuff like that. And like the stuff that engineers don't think about, but are part of the reason that they, you know, live the lives that they're able to live. Yeah. Well, I, I also think that um, demand is a really important part of that equation that we talked about, right? So even if you're irreplaceable to an organization, if you have no other options, you're not, you don't have a ton of leverage, right? Yeah. But the fact that this skill set is in so much demand because all these companies they want to build things right they want to innovate mm -hmm. they want they want to uh, cut costs they want to do a lot of these things which data and software engineering can help with that to me is another big part of this equation is like knowing that you have other options can drive your price up tremendously and good you know th those people that are even just slightly better than the average engineer or data scientist or whatever it might be, they have unbelievable leverage because there are so many options for them, at least in the current market. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm always thinking about too, is that, okay, you know, if I'm uh, like a doctor, right, are, are hospitals going out of their way to find new like doctors? Is like a 5X doctor better than any other doctor in terms of competitors? Not necessarily. Right. But in this industry that's driven by competition and innovation, mm -hmm. other companies value you disproportionately, which I think is another really unique factor that makes this domain uh, one of these one of these ones that can break those break down a lot of those barriers around disadvantage. Oh, yeah. And it's like, uh, this is funny, because this is actually an example of the government working against doctors versus working for people in tech. Um, 
if you're a doctor, like you, you can't just switch states instantly and go like yeah, halfway across the country and go work somewhere else. You can't working remotely. There's regulations around that, around that you know. Um, but if you work in software, there, there's this great book called The Code. Uh, I forget what the author's name is, but she's uh, this really smart lady from the University of Washington. And there are, and I'm, I'm heavily simplifying over here. There are many reasons why California became Silicon Valley and not Dallas, Texas, even though Dallas, Texas has Texas Instruments, uh, which at the time, and, and you know, even today is one of the greatest innovators in chip technology. Yeah, 83, baby. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and one of the big reasons is because the in California, um, non-competes are very difficult to enforce. Extremely. You, you basically can't enforce them. Uh, in Texas, they're very, very easy to uh, enforce. And because of that, there's a huge, if you're, you know, an engineer or you're a tech person in California, switching companies is super easy. And it's why people in California do it so much um, because your employer has limited options to stop you from doing that. Uh, versus in Texas, there are all these options to stop people from, you know, switching companies rapidly uh, in order to, you know, go to wherever the most innovation is happening or wherever they're paid the best or wherever they're able to most quickly realize their ideas. Um, it's an example of the government being in your corner again. Fascinating. I, I actually didn't, I'd never thought of that. That is pretty fascinating. I mean, you, I'm starting to see it a lot more as I look into, you know, where I incorporate my companies in terms of where I live geographically and, and those types of things. But interstate politics and policy has so much more impact than you'd think. I mean, just oh, me yeah. looking at taxes in different states is completely blowing my my scalp off in terms of of how I would evaluate a lot of these decisions. And when money is involved, it, it is a very interesting decision of like where you live, where you work, the company policies. It's it's a very nuanced equation mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people don't don't really consider all the ins and outs of. And I think one danger a lot of tech people have is that they – it's one thing I've noticed. I live in Seattle now, right? So I'm surrounded by tech people. And I, I specifically live in the heart of tech in Seattle in South Lake Union, um, which is where Amazon is headquartered. I can actually see the Amazon executive offices right over there. Um, and it's, it's something I've noticed a lot of people in tech because a lot of them don't understand government very well. Um, they kind of misconstrue, uh, the value that they drive as to the reason that they get paid the insane salaries. Like the way for me, it's when I found out that people in engineering can get paid $500,000 plus before they hit the age of 30 that I was like, okay, like there's definitely something going on here. That's not just, these people are very smart. Like very few people are that smart. Um, but how are all these people? And, you know, I mean, it's still not easy. This isn't like something that just everyone gets paid. Um, but a, a decent number of people do get paid that amount of money. And that's what kind of got me researching. Okay. What are like the systematic things that push up the wages of these people? Uh, and you know, the government's involved a lot more than people think that think it is. Like you were saying, it's uh, uh tax policy, uh, labor policy. This stuff is extremely important to influencing you know, why things happen the way they do. Um, if anyone's ever making $500,000 plus before the age of 30, you need to ask, okay, like where, like what help are they receiving? Um, and, and the government will almost always be involved somewhere. So specifically to data, for example, engineering, where mm-hmm. you've now transitioned to from being a data analyst and data scientist, how is the government helping you in a different way? So I think with data engineering, one of the big things is America has very bad privacy protections. Um, actually, really funny story. Um, China recently passed a bunch of privacy laws in their country where at the private sector level, there is an argument that can be made that China has better privacy protection for its citizens than America does. 
Uh, obviously, the government can still see everything you do and everything. So, you know, let's not, you know, I'm, I'm not other uh, citizens. Uh, yes, yes, uh, yeah. So I'm not, uh, you, you know, that's not lost on me. Um, but for example, the Europeans have they have excellent privacy protect or they have decent privacy protections. I, I would still say there's a lot of work to do over there. Um, the lack of privacy protections in America has made the amount of data that we can collect on citizens uh, by private companies extremely high. That volume of data is so high that you know individual data scientists, even if they can process it, shouldn't be processing it. Like you do need a new job for that. Um, and that's where data engineers come out of, right? So at a really high macro level, I think that's one way the government helps me as a data engineer. Um, the U.S. is very, very slow to enact any form of legislation on that. And even when we do, like California has something, uh, but I'm in Washington, you know, um, and, and, and then, you know, there's always business in Texas where, you know, as far as I'm aware, nothing's going on over there. Um, so there, that's one thing. Um, obviously, tax law is very, very beneficial, probably... A really interesting example that people may not know about: if you uh, if you work enough time in tech, you'll you, you'll you'll spend time with the Romanian outsourcing team. Um, there's a couple of countries on the planet that are like stuff gets outsourced over there: um, India, the Philippines, Ukraine, uh, to an extent China. Um, there and, was some growth in Argentina for a while, but I think that that's largely shut down. Right, um, and Romania are big ones, right? Like outside of China, all English speaking countries with large populations. Um, and every single one of those countries, it's because there's a huge English-speaking population there, and uh, which is you know entirely government policy, right? Like Romanians don't natively speak English; they learn it because the government educates them in it. Um, but I went to Romania a couple of years ago, right? And I was talking to a lawyer over there at a coffee shop, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a cool place. Like a UI path and everything's here." And he's like, "Oh yeah, like in Romania, if you work in IT, um, I think it's like two to three years of income taxes. Just don't have to pay them. You know, the first two to three years of your career, the government's like." You do not have to pay income taxes, um, which all of a sudden makes the Romanian worker a lot more affordable, right? Because the, you know, let's just say, you know, let's just take American tax law, for example, right? The extra 30% you have to pay someone to make up for their taxes, you just don't have to pay it anymore. So, yeah, I, I think um, there's the American example, there's the international example. Um, I'd say the most obvious example for data professionals is the lack of privacy laws in America um, greatly increased the need for us to exist. That's fascinating. I never would have thought of that, but it makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, obviously there's other incentives. So, so what went into your decision to go from data science to data engineering? It, well, obviously there was a financial component, but right. what other factors sort of drove you down that path? So there was a couple of things, right? So I started off as a data analyst back in what 2018 or something. Um, got my first job over there and I was very, very lucky to have a, you know, young boss who was also like quite visionary. Um, like for his own life and everything. And like told me about that, you know, data science exists. Um, and for me, I'm lucky enough to come from a family that kind of like expects monetary success. It's not like, I, I always like to tell people and, and I tell people it's, it's an advantage that I have that I want to pass down to others. It's not trying to brag. It's trying to say, this is what my parents did for me. And I'm trying to do this for you guys as well. Um, the, the household I grew up in, it was never like, are you going to make a hundred thousand dollars? It was how many hundreds of thousands of dollars per year do you plan on making? Um, it was kind of the thought process and like really like was like dug into me from a young age. Um, and because of that, when I started off as a data analyst, you know, I was being paid 55 K a year and I was like, okay, well, what, what's the upside on this job? Where do I eventually go from here? Um, the logical conclusion was, okay, as a data analyst, unless I go into like management, um, which I, I don't, didn't really want to at the time. Uh, I basically have to become a data scientist to make, you know, the kind of income that I would find acceptable personally. Um, 
So that kind of like started the impetus of it. And then eventually what started to happen was I started to realize uh, Tableau really bored me, um, like BI tools and stuff like that. Um, and I was a lot more interested in like coding work and in like uh, deeper analysis. I love using machine learning algorithms to like find interesting correlations and, you know, stuff, uh, correlations in like data. Um, basically from a intellectual rigor perspective, um, I didn't find data analysis particularly interesting. Um, and so that's where I like, like that first company I was at interstate batteries was kind of where I like set my sights on, okay, I'm going to become a data scientist. Um, and I wanted to do it without getting a master's degree. Um, and, and the funny thing is actually like you were very, uh, uh, instrumental in that decision to like not get a master's degree and try and get into data science. Uh, Cause I remember I asked you once what you thought about it and you were like, eh, I didn't get a confident, like, yes, get a master's degree. That is going to make you a data scientist. It was like lukewarm at best, you know? Uh, and then I was like, okay, well, this guy knows what he's talking about, obviously. Um, so let me not focus on the master's degree. Let me focus on like differentiating myself in my career. I uh, went to Nordstrom uh, eventually and then um, was a senior data analyst over there. A lot of opportunities to do data science work. Um, I really forced my work into data science and analytics over there. And uh, actually, inadvertently, a lot of data engineering because I was building a lot of tools for the data analyst to use because I was one of the few data analysts that knew how to code on the team. Um, and... Yeah, I was. Quick segue. How did you? How did you force your work when you when you say that? Like, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> oh man! So th- this is a technique I tell people in private that I try not to advertise on podcasts in case a boss hears me. But basically, if I find work I really don't want to do, usually it's building a dashboard or something like that, or running like a very boring SQL query. Um, what I will do is I will put that work on the back burner, and I'll do something I'm very interested in but make sure it drives a lot of value. Like I'll code up this like whole tool that like automatically like, you know, offloads a bunch of work for a bunch of analysts. And I'll show my boss that. That way my boss is like, well, I mean, okay, so he didn't do what I asked him to do. But I mean, this is also very useful. We, you know, we can't just like, I shouldn't reprimand him because this is, this is very useful. Um, uh, and then obviously, you know, I, I do have bosses that are like, no, but we also need you to do this other thing. But usually, I, I mean, I've had great bosses that like work with what I want to do in the workplace. Um, but that I feel like to an extent, I also do earn that. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky on one extent. And then, you know, there, there is obviously some work that goes into like driving value and stuff I'm interested in. Um, so, you know, then there's an incentive for the boss to keep me because they're like, okay, well, he's putting more work in than, you know, most people would. And he's doing it. He's driving value. So that's what I mean by doing work you want to do. I'm not advocating this strategy very strongly. Um, I'm saying it worked for me. Um, I, I, I will... I will also say I'm just an extremely lucky guy that I've had only good bosses. Um, but I know a lot of people just, that's just not the way it is. Um, yeah. Well, I think that you earn leeway by doing good quality work, you know, and if you're clearly critical thinking and figuring out what does drive value that aligns with the work that you're interested in doing, I don't see a good manager like you described isn't necessarily going to punish you for that, right? If, if you're creating value for the company, in theory, they should just be feeding you more work that you love doing if you're going to be doing a good job at that. I, I wouldn't say that the ask forgiveness, not permission approach is necessarily the best route to go in the short term for We're everyone. Like, it obviously, that's, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I think that there is abs- <laughs> yeah, there's absolutely something to be said, though, for... Um, for being able to align what you're interested with, with what you're doing and communicating that to your boss over time. 
because every boss wants, uh, they should want you to enjoy your work. And if you're enjoying your work, you're creating better out outputs. So if you can align those things, which I think is not overwhelmingly difficult. I mean, there are going to be some things that, that like you probably are going to get tasked with that you don't want to do. But if you're good enough at the other things that you do, like we described earlier, so good, they can't ignore you, then they'll just give that work to someone else. So, and that's you usually know, what happens. Exactly. And, and that's <laughs> so okay. It's not a dashboard. I love, all right. So, so we went on a little tangent there, but, but back to the, the topic at hand, the sort of path into the data engineering. Right. So I spent, I, I made sure I coded every single day, built up my uh, development skills. And then I got an opportunity to interview at a uh, undisclosed um, big tech company. Um, a lot of undisclosed over here, just to make sure that uh, I don't shoot myself in the foot on accident. But um, they wanted me on as a uh, machine learning suite. Um, so based on that, people who are informed in the industry, you can probably guess what the company is, quite honestly, because I believe only like two or three of them actually call it that. Um, but yeah, so this company, uh, they, they were like, oh, yeah, we want you to interview for machine learning suite. I passed the basic recruiting interview. Then the tech interviews were coming up. So I was just like grinding out systems design. I was just grinding out like uh, lead code and stuff. Because um, as much as people say they hate that, I, I don't know why people say they hate lead code so much. Like, I love that there's like, th- there's a very clear path that says, just grind this and you will get a job. Like, like what, you, you will never receive that kind of clarity in any job. You know, like, I mean, I, I love the clarity, you know, then it's just hours put in, you know. Um, but you know, that's just me. And I just happened to have an opportunity to interview with, uh, uh, bet fanatics, which is the company I'm working with right now. Um, and it's because I was in Seattle, important tip for people. There is a legitimate economic benefit to being in the centers of innovation of your industry. Um, they were in Seattle because it's an AWS company, uh, and they needed AWS training. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to Seattle, the, you know, AWS headquarters right over there, you know, um, AWS. Huh? The mecca of AWS. Exactly. You know, um, and I mean, even if they had, they did like Google Cloud training, Google Cloud's headquarters, or I don't know if it's their headquarters, but one of their biggest offices is like, right, it's like 10 minutes away from me. Um, there's a legitimate benefit to pay, to overpaying on rent to be in the mecca of, you know, what uh, your industry is all about. Um, so I went to a happy hour. Um, happy hour, happy hour networking events always go to those because your force of personality can um, obviate the need to, you know, go through a lot of the, singing and dancing you need to do during an interview process where you can be what they're looking for, but the person's just having a bad day, you know, uh, people are generally in a good mood at happy hours. Um, or, you know, even if they're in a bad mood, you can take oh, advantage called of happy hours. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And then I, I told them, uh, the uh, director, I said, yeah, I'm looking like, I'm only going to transition if I can get a data scientist or data engineer, because it's like, I don't want to become a data analyst again. Um, and I'm on track to being a data scientist in Nordstrom. So, you know, why even leave? Uh, and then she's like, okay, we'll interview you for both and then, you know, see what you fit into better. And they believed I fit in as a data engineer better, which honestly, looking back at it, I think is true. Um, I, as a data, if you want to become a data scientist on the IC path, you eventually have to get like, learn like the core mathematics behind it. Like, I think you can avoid the mathematics for a while, uh, but you'll most likely eventually have to hit like hit them up, um, or go into management. Uh, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll go into engineering, uh, avoid the math. Yeah. I mean, that's. I think unbelievably introspective of you, right? Uh, I really like your process of evaluation, kind of setting clear goals and knowing what you want. I feel like so many people, it seems like so many people forget that step, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I I like to think that life is sort of a greedy algorithm Mm -hmm. where you go to the best opportunity that you have with the information that you have. 
But people forget that they can also gather more information to make Mm -hmm. a better informed decision. And part of that is thinking about where you want to go and what the process is. So I think that making the best decision for um, based on the research that you do and the understanding of yourself is a very valuable thing to add. I, I am interested Obviously, we've talked. I, I know that like finances are important for you, right? That that is something that is a key motivator. I, I think you know it's important for me, but not on the same level as you, which which I think is is fine. Like everyone has different aptitudes, and you're very transparent about that, which is something I, I very much respect about you. Um, can you tell me, in terms of orders of magnitude, you know, from starting as a data analyst, essentially? like less than five years ago mm-hmm. to what you do now, what has been your multiplier of income or six like X. close to it? six X. I mean, that to me is pretty incredible about this domain as if yeah. like, you know, I, I don't think people can conceptualize how impressive that is um, to be able to, to go and, and improve your amount that you may. And obviously that's not all in your work. You're doing content and these types of things. As right. Well. Right. Let me be very clear. That includes my YouTube income and stuff too. Yeah. So, um, but um, the majority of my income is still from my job. Yeah. And and to me, that that's something that is aspirational, right? Is that, hey, in this relatively short amount of time, you went from, you, you essentially like six extra income, you created all these different opportunities, you learned a lot of these skills. I don't know what other like formal career you yeah. could be working in that would provide that type of growth in that short amount of time. Medicine, because residents get paid nothing. <laughs> well, I yes. a, yeah, I, I literally went from literally yesterday, I was making 50K a year. Now I make $250,000 a year today. Um, but but it's, it's yeah. because like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah. A different type of uh, type. It, of, because it, that depends yeah. when you actually cut that sample, right? Right, exactly. So you, exactly. you know, I, I think that your sample is anywhere you cut it, you would have been making multiple X. Uh, increases in, in income, which is pretty fascinating. Maybe after not the first COVID, year. Um, after COVID, in theory, and again, there are infinite disadvantages that people can have. Like I, I, I do recognize, I want to make sure that I'm not like just saying anyone can do it. And, you know, why doesn't everyone just do this? You know, it's not like that. Um, but after COVID, the biggest limitation factor for if, if you exclude like work, you know, and stuff like that, assuming people know the career exists for people getting into these high-end tech careers, uh, because there are a lot of software engineers that like cap out at 150k, um, just because they don't work in like big tech or something, you know. Um, how it was location? COVID has created uh, an opportunity to make these insane wages anywhere in the country, and theoretically anywhere in the world, theoretically, but anywhere in the country for sure. Um, I have had, I can confirm, I've had five different companies reach out to me, fully remote opportunities, basically matching my current. Uh, my current wages uh, and my current wages comfortably support me any, like literally any location in the country, any major city in the country, I can go live in that city and I'll be very comfortable over there. Now, can I buy a house? Depends on how the stocks perform, honestly. <laughs> that, that's a little bit different, but you know, I, I think the whole housing stock in this country is uh, uh, that's a whole different issue, but you also don't need a house to, you know, live a very comfortable life. Apart, I mean, I have a whole theory on the, whether the average person should get a primary house or not. That's way out of the scope of this podcast, but yeah. So, uh, you know, you said five recruiters have reached out to you. What has been, what has your demand looked like um, for your skills at other companies since you've switched to engineering? 
extremely high, way higher than data analytics. Um, I And let me be extremely clear. I'm not at all poo-pooing on the career of data analysts. I'm not at all saying this is like, like it's where I got started. Depending on what you want out of life, um, it's kind of a stopping point or it's kind of a, uh, a midpoint, right? There are many, like you can get paid $150,000 very comfortably as a data analyst. I mean, you'll have to be like a really like top tier one at a company that's willing to pay that. Um, usually in a high expense city, but you know, um, but it's possible, right? And then a lot of people want to go into management, you know, so you go from data analyst to data analyst manager. Uh, I mean, if, if your team is driving extreme value, there's not necessarily a reason you shouldn't get paid as much as a data science manager. Um, now, will you? I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, the people who are writing code, building up infrastructure, um, designing systems, um, they're the people who are going to be paid and demanded the most. Like the, the pay correlates to demand. Um, and there's this kind of, there, there's this kind of mis, uh, misguided uh, philosophy, I think, that we have in the US. Um, I don't know. I only say that because I don't know if it applies in other countries where people, like I've, I've heard people on more than one occasion say, because uh, I try, I, I'm more or less open with how much I make in private just to kind of see if I can inspire people. Like, look how much money there is out there. You can, you can grab some of your for yourself too. Um, and the number of people that say like, oh yeah, but I like, I respect my work-life balance. And I think in the past when investment banking was like the only non-master's degree career you could take that would take in thousands of people per year and would pay insane salaries, um, that logic made hundred percent sense. Investment bankers, doctors, lawyers, these people have no work-life balance. Um, I, I didn't even know this. As a doctor, um, if you're diagnosed with like a mental health condition, you could lose your board certification. Like it's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I, I feel so bad for them, you know. Um, but software has created this like huge pool of like necessary talent um, where these people get paid insane amounts of money and are treated very well. Like the number of engineers I know that do not work eight hours a day is probably greater than the ones I know that do as long as they work in big tech, you know. Um, yeah. Well, you look at investment banking too. On the flip side of that, Investment bankers, for the most part, are almost completely replaceable, right? You look at the skill set mm-hmm. that the average investment banker uses, and they're making slides. I mean, I have a lot of friends. I was looking to investment banking and... and it's a sales like, job, right? Yeah, in some sense. Um, I, I don't know if sales... When you say replaceable, what do you mean? Like, how do you replace a salesperson? Um, I mean, I think in some sense... Like, the, let's say an entry-level investment banker, right? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not entry even really... Level. 100%. Yeah, you're not even really doing sales. You're yeah, essentially yeah. like making decks for the people who are actually doing this. That's sales. why they get treated so poorly, you know? Yeah. Oh, and that's the thing is that I think your skill set as a data scientist, a data analyst, data engineer, machine learning engineer, whatever it is, is significant. Like the, the barrier to get that skill set is a lot harder than uh, it would be as an entry level uh, investment banker. And so if we like zoom out on that, like, yes, there are mm-hmm. filters for investment bankers, right? But the filters mainly are what school you went to. The, the filters are uh, due to competition, not due to technical skills. Um, Correct. I, I went to Emory, uh, huge school just turns out IB people. Um, massive respect to these people because they are actually insane. Like, I think there's something wrong with them and that like how hard they work and how hard yeah, they can with each other. Emory's business school grades on a bell curve. There are going to be people who fail just because they're not at the top of the bell curve, no matter how good their work is. You know, like it's a zero sum game in that industry. So, 
No, you're hundred yeah. percent right. Yeah, it's it's technology is not a zero sum game. Yeah, and, and but to that point, like you need something other than money to incentivize people to come to your company. And mm-hmm. I think work life balance, especially if this group is not as you know, if they if there's a limited amount of people that have that skill set. Maybe in investment banking, there's a limited amount of people that are willing to work that hard, but you yeah. don't find them and find that out until like they quit after a year, right? Exactly. You, it's hard to evaluate if they're going to quit. It's really easy to evaluate if a data engine analyst or software engineer is going to quit because there's so many other options. There's it's like so much more availability and like like just one more thing, one more benefit. I mean, to be perfectly honest, right? At least to me, I see no difference. Or like no tangible difference between like five hundred and fifty thousand dollars and six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? Yeah. The amount the amount that I can do with that money is like like at that point it is significantly less material. And if one company is going to treat me significantly better, mm-hmm. that hundred thousand dollars is going to be something that that like I would invest in myself. It's weird, but you get like diminishing marginal returns on income. Which is a pretty fast, at least for me. Not everyone thinks that way. I think a lot of people will be like, oh, an extra hundred thousand dollars a year, like you know, that leads to something greater in the future, whatever it is. Um, but for a lot of software engineers, I think that that is a, a like a super salient factor. Oh, it's a hundred percent true. Um, I mean, it, with, with IB, I think what one thing people like about it is that you, you were talking about leverage, right? IB gives you an insane amount of leverage if you're willing to perform at the absolute highest levels, um, because you get you get you get a cut of the deal. You know, yeah. that, that's. Uh, you know, it's it's the way te- technology scales by the people impacted. IB scales by the dollars involved, um, and and I think that's why people are into it. You know, because the potential to become an insta millionaire is is there if you are willing to just put your head to the grindstone and you know basically not have a life. Um, which is why I like engineering. You know, it's um, it, it, it's a career where you do get, I don't know if you get that kind of leverage. Like, I don't know how many engineers can make a million plus a year. Um, but like you said, you know, like at a certain point, what's this money even doing? You know? Yeah. Oh, I, I would say disproportionately, maybe it's because they have more free time, engineers, data folk, whatever it is. I think that they're more inclined to do side hustles, start other businesses. Mm-hmm. And the return on that to me is infinite. Like to be perfectly sure. transparent, sure. I already make more money annually on the other businesses that I have than I do in my like main, my main work. And it's pretty close. It's not like, but, but the amount that the content and the, the agency stuff and the courses, the amount that that's grown annually is like unbelievable right. in proportion to the amount that my income that a company would pay me is, has grown. Like and how you doing the stuff versus your job, right? Exactly. Yeah, and so to me, that's something that's really interesting. Is that okay? Like, yes, it, it investment banking and one of these other careers can scale in that way, but if you're interested in having like upside through your own things, you can use that extra time that that like balance in the work life balance mm-hmm. um, to do whatever you want, right? I mean, I know some people right. like crazy people that are working two, three full time jobs in tech that are each paying like over a hundred K a year. Beginning right. of the pandemic is what I was doing too. It's yeah. uh, again, cause you, you totally can, you know, if you manage your meetings well and you turn in your work uh, and I see zero ethical issues with that as, as long as you are turning in what is expected of you, 
Yeah. And the companies aren't competing or anything like that. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and that's usually you, you have the written into your employment contract. Like there's like a list of companies you can't, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so, but to uh, just rewinding a little bit to the data analyst and, you know, you, you weren't poo-pooing it, but you were saying, hey, this is maybe more of like a, 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 a pivot point, right? Where or I look at it as sort of a trampoline. So in one of the most recent videos that I made, is, is data science a good career? I talk about exit opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a data scientist, what what is the outcomes that you can go into? I mean, it's it's pretty open. You know, you can go into a bunch of engineering, you can go into management, you could mm-hmm. even technically start your own stuff. I look at a data analyst role in a very similar way, where a lot of these other opportunities that have tremendous amounts of upside, they're now accessible to you yeah and and you know some people might love data analyst work that's totally fine you can continue to do it but that's not in my mind where the value is the value is is where you can actually go from there um and and like the the other opportunities that can come out of it i mean data analysts for the most part are a bit more generalists and the ability to specialize in my opinion is where you can make true financial and personal growth uh, because when you specialize, it's a lot harder to replace you, right? Because you know this very important thing really well. Um, and, you know, maybe this is this is a lot on just like general career advice, but I, I really behoove people to think about what is the upside? What is the exit opportunity? Even when you're just starting, right? Oh, that's exactly that. what you did. Um, and it might be hard to do that, but that's also part of the work is that when you're doing it, you can start thinking about what do I actually want to do from here? Do I enjoy this? Um, because my greatest fear is getting caught up in the, in the momentum and just idling basically. Um, maybe that's a personal thing, but I, I, I just, I get very uncomfortable when I'm like, where's this going? What's, what's it all for? Look, we spend the majority of our lives working at the end of the day, right? Like, like let's just exclude sleeping as an activity. Uh, the majority of our lives are spent working. I, I never understood people who don't put a lot of thought into their career. Um, and into what they like, what is the five year plan from what we're doing here? Um, it, you spend the majority of your existence doing this, you know? Um, and it, it, it's also why I'm very open about finances as well, right? Like, probably the in, in, a, in a country like the US, uh, or I mean, I'm going to say almost anyone on the planet, right? There, there's a minority of people I know that this wouldn't affect them, but a small, like 51% of your happiness is in some way dictated by how well are you managing your money. It's, it's not how much you make, right? Like you can, you can make 150 be very, very happy. You can make 550 be completely miserable. Um, but how do you manage your finances, right? Do you spend a lot less than you make? Do you have a cushion in the inevitable, you know, hope, you know, God forbid, but the inevitable case that something bad happens to you? Can you, you know, sustain yourself with your, based on your savings? And, um, you know, a lot of that is determined on how good is your job? How much money are you able to generate from your job? Um, how in demand is what you're learning, right? Why are there all these YouTube videos of people showing their uh, workspace at Google? It's because people know that this is a desirable place and a desirable place to work. And um, you can get instant clicks from just, you know, showing your workplace. Um Again, not putting down anyone that did that. Um, I, I'd say now it's a bit overdone, but you know, not putting down anyone who's done that. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I heavily encourage people to have these uncomfortable conversations with themselves, right? 
Um, for me, it was uncomfortable when someone told me, uh, like I had an, an investment bank person friend tell me, oh yeah, but like I, I have like, you know, a couple million dollars like in owed money over the next like, you know, decade or so for XYZ. Basically, you know, like the career path for people with a certain set of skills, Ivy makes a lot of sense for them. Uh, and if they're willing to put in a certain amount of effort and stuff like that. Um, not becoming a doctor, uh, I don't have the career certainty that doctors do. Like doctors do not get fired unless they like really, really mess stuff up, right? Um, you're more or less guaranteed a solid lifestyle for the rest of your life, right? Um, just don't TikTok your operations and leave tools inside the patients. You know, like that guy that, I don't know what country he was in, but some doctor was like doing that, like left stuff inside patients. Um, <laughs> don't mess up that badly. You know, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm brutally honest with myself about like the the detriments to my own career. Um, I spend so much time behind a computer. Like if I don't actually work on it, my social skills deteriorate. Like that that is totally a thing that engineers go through. You know, um, carpal tunnel syndrome. That's like going to happen. Like the stuff is important to think about. You know, um, I was in the elevator today, and like you know the reception was asking me, oh yeah, what about? Are you ever like worried about your eyesight? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to be like legally blind by the time I'm sixty. But you know. Uh, they should make a parody movie. You know, you have legally blonde for lawyers, legally blind for uh, engineers and tech people. You know, <laughs> we'll put it on your channel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 is one of the most salient points, though, is that it is it's all an equation for you to figure out, mm -hmm. right? Based on what you like, your aptitudes, your interests. It, it, to me. The choose your own adventure portion of it is what makes it fun. Mm -hmm. But if someone else chooses your own your like adventure for you, you're inevitably not going to be in a good place. And I mean, don't I make up facts to fit a narrative. You know, that's a really dangerous thing people tend confirmation to Confirmation bias, major issue. Um, yes. So I come from Dallas, Texas. I love the city. It has a very again, if you, if you want to live a solid middle class lifestyle, I will say Dallas, Texas is one of the best places on the planet to do it. Um Job opportunities are high, taxes are low, and you, you know the cost of cost of living is quite low over there compared to how much you can make. Uh, but the number of people, like friends I have in Dallas, that are like, "Oh yeah, why would you like live in New York? It's too expensive. Why would you go to LA? It's too expensive. What about all the taxes and everything?" The thing is, once you start making a certain amount of money, who cares about the taxes? That's not, or I wouldn't say who cares about the taxes, but that's not like, you know, uh, well, and, and you run a business, right? So it's a little bit different because you have uh, all these additional taxes you have to pay for. Um, business is very different, but as a you know just an employed dude. And like all my taxes go to my, you know, they're just my income taxes. Even on YouTube, I just pay income tax on that. Um, the, you know, like, like the opportunity, like the, it, it's something I read on Reddit. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting about like a lot of people from these uh, smaller cities, which, you know, again, nothing wrong with them, but sometimes they'll say that to justify their lower incomes. Um, in Dallas, Texas, you're not going to be paid the kinds of salaries you're paid in New York. Um, uh, Again, not to say the cost of living is not a thing. I do, I do, I do think SF is a little bit ridiculous, but you know, um, you know, it's it's confirmation bias in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I that is that is something I have been thinking about a lot recently. Is what lies do I tell myself to justify what I'm doing? And those are hard conversations for me to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, I've talked pretty openly, at least with my friends. I don't think I've done it via podcast or anything, but I, I've been pretty disappointed with uh, with myself this year, right? I took on mm -hmm. a lot of things, probably more than I should have, and I haven't been able to do them to the best of my ability. And to me, the question is like, could I have actually done them to the best of my ability or am I making excuses for myself 
for not giving the best output, for being lazy, for procrastinating, for doing those types of things. And unfortunately, I think I am making some excuses for myself in a lot of ways. Like, yes, there's unavoidable things, but I could be saying no to more things too. I could be, you know, I, I could be sacrificing some of my free time or some of the things that I enjoy to actually keep up with my responsibilities that I've chosen for myself. And, um, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, again, these conversations with yourself are very, very difficult, but I think that's what you need to do to continually grow as a person and to evolve and to, you know, that to, to find the career you're interested in or, or to, to be true to yourself rather than to your parents or to other people or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, it, it's hard for like, the, the point is it's hard for, for us too. Yeah. It's not like an easy thing to do. It, it kind of sucks. Cause you're like, wow, you know, I could be so much better than I am right now. Um, oh, and why I tell myself all the time is that, um, uh, coding is what makes me money. Um, and it is, but it's not coding. It's the creation of value for my company of which one part I hate about my job, but I, I have to get better at it, is managing Jira boards. Um, and the, the, the you, managing Jira boards and making sure other engineers are getting their work done, because you know, like the, let, let's say you're working with an offshore team, right? Like managing that offshore team is, you can drive a lot, I can drive a lot more value, like currently where we are in product development, I can drive a lot more value by handling that better than I can by like developing some random algorithm that does, that does something that is maybe useful right now. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard conversation I had to have with myself this week where it's like, okay, writing code right now, where we are in product development for myself is not necessarily where I can drive the most value. Uh, even though I'm an engineer, um, you know, some project management is where I can actually drive more value. Yeah. I actually had that realization too. The problem is I'm realizing I just don't like project management. Like it's not <laughs> something I enjoy at all. And unfortunately and, you can't outsource parts of your job like you can in a business, right? In a business you can like, yeah. eh, you can do it, but it's like, I, yeah. I can't hire some dude to do it for me. Exactly. I mean, maybe you can at a, at a certain scale. That's what I'm working on is like, how do I, who do I hire to, to, to project manage my entire life? Um, you know, you said something interesting about your work. Um, you know, you said at the stage that you're at, you came into this company, if I recall correctly, like as they're building things up and scaling things mm -hmm. up. Uh, can you talk to me about what that's like? I mean, a lot of people go into this system that's already like firing on all cylinders. It seems like this role is very much um, like you get to be a part of the building process. If, if, if correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, it's super cool. It's one of the biggest reasons I joined, right? Because there are probably a limit, there's a limited number of opportunities in your life where you can kind of have everything. Um, I, I always like to say like, uh, you, you know, there's, um, a, a great, it was like a paper I read on like the psychology of the average American. And it talked about kind of how Americans as a people, we are, uh, extremely hopeful for the future. Um, and it, it reflects differently amongst Europeans where that hope is, uh, a little bit more skeptical about like the, the guarantee of a better future. Uh, and a lot of that just has to do with like, not because we're special, but because our land is special, uh, good government policy in general, distance from foreign conflicts. Um, and I swear I'm going somewhere with this, but, uh, this, um, it, it's an interesting, um, the living in America, being brought up as an American, but being brought up by immigrant parents, right? My parents are from India and like India is, uh, it, it's a country while it's doing better, it's, it's still a country of little, um, 
there are a one point whatever billion people, you know, basically fighting over two trillion dollars of wealth. That's not that much to go around. Um, and a good section of that's just, you know, people in the upper class are able to get it. So that immigrant mentality was very much like built into me of like, you can't have everything you want all at once at the same time. Uh, and that skepticism for like, no, no, I have to like just sit and grind at the grind wheel. Um, and I, I can't have everything I want. Yeah, I have to like struggle. Struggling is important because it's just the way life works. Um, this job gave me a very interesting opportunity to not only work at a startup, but get paid very well to do so. Um, working at a startup is very easy. Getting paid very well once you, you once you do it once is fairly simple to do too. Um, but doing both at the same time, it's a uh, it's a golden opportunity. You know how how many companies can I get paid what I do to build infrastructure from the ground up and like define um, what legacy code gets built out? I am the legacy code, you know. Um, so for me, it, it's been a really cool opportunity because I imagine it's not something I'll get to do much more in my life where I get to see how experienced people we ha- we hire a lot of Fang people. Um, so how like very experienced people who know how to build scalable systems, um, actually build stuff up from the ground up. And because there's no legacy code, we can use whatever AWS services we want to. It gave me a great opportunity to do tons of research into all the new tools that like AWS has released in the last year or two, uh, into ways that they've improved tools in the last year or two. You know, Athena, for example, is way better than it used to be. Um, it used to not be like the best thing ever. Uh, now it's way better. Um, you know, S3, you can have static websites on it. Um, there are, uh, they have like AWS, like fin spaces now, which you can use, like manage your entire, uh, financial, like your entire FPNA now, um, instead of getting like a separate tool for it, like uh, dynamics 365 or something. Um, and being able to define that from the ground up is pretty cool. Now, here's the one thing that is kind of less interesting about it. Um, data engineers are not data creators, uh, and data engineers cannot really create something from nothing. Um, a software engineer, right? The, the the app starts with them. It gets created by them, but they're also the data producers, right? So the data that their app produces is what we manage. Um, currently, there's not too much data to manage. So, you know, there's a lot of code that we just can't write because there's no data to manage at the moment. We're just creating infrastructure. So on one hand, it's really cool to see how stuff gets started from the ground up. On the other hand, um, we're also kind of like waiting for like more data to come in. That way we can see how it affects the infrastructure that we've set up. Um, so a really, really roundabout way of saying it's a rare opportunity to truly live the American dream of getting everything you want all at once um, instead of the more immigrant mindset of like suffering is life, you know? Yeah, the blue-blooded American dream, dude. Look at you living it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so something I thought was pretty interesting, obviously, at our meetup, you got a chance to hang out with Ben Rogajan and uh, Zach Wilson quite a bit, mm-hmm. two prolific data engineers in their own right. Mm-hmm. Who, who both have had on the podcast. I'll link those episodes below. But what was your biggest takeaway from speaking with them so much? I, I feel like that's a really cool opportunity, especially as you're moving into this new data engineering role. Um, like what were some of the biggest questions that maybe you had for them too? Driving value as a data engineer, um, there are multiple avenues to do it. So, and, you know, Zach and Ben can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong over here, but kind of my observation of the two is that Zach kind of is... I get the impression that he's a 10x developer. That, that, that's very much the impression I get talking to him. Um, we had the iron analyst and like the code this guy was writing to just like rip through that uh, 40 gigabytes of data uh, was like better than what anyone else had written, including myself for sure. Um, and it, it, he he knew these techniques and stuff that like are obvious of like this man has like software engineering experience. Um, so I get the impression that he's a 10x developer. And you know, that's, uh, the, that is not to 
I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into that, especially, you know, anyone feel free to follow his LinkedIn and you'll see um, how far he's come in life. It is genuinely impressive. Um, and you talk to Ben, right? And you get the, and, and you know, maybe Ben's a 10x developer. I don't actually know. Um, but what, what I know about Ben is that he understands problems and how to solve them in the industry at a very high macro level. You ask him about any tool and he's like, here's my educated opinion on this tool, given all the experience I have. This is why Snowflake is good. This is why Databricks is good. Like he has an entire series on his YouTube channel. Um, by the way, for anyone that doesn't know, Ben Rogashan's the Seattle data guy. Um, he has this entire like series on his YouTube channel, which is like a great way to get educated on this space as like, why is Snowflake important? What was the industry like before Snowflake came around? And why do people care about it today? Why is the data lake house that data um, bricks have? Why is it that such a big deal, you know? Um, and and I, I would say they both reached like great levels of success going kind of like two different ways in their career. Um, like Zach is really like digging deep into becoming a better and better engineer is the impression I get. And Ben is digging deep into becoming a better, like person who can like, like knows how the industry works at a very high level and how to set up infrastructure and set up stuff like that. And it makes sense, right? Like, like Zach is a fan guy and then Ben is a former fan, but last, I mean, he, he does uh, his um, independent consulting now. So that's kind of the impression I got. Like, I have two major routes I could choose to really upgrade myself in the data engineering space. Uh, and I need to decide which one I want to do because I, I, I don't really know which one I want to do. They, they both sound awesome. Like I was just like, you know, like sitting like they're like, oh, yes, teach me teacher, you know, the entire time, like, you know, like really wide eyed and everything. And I, I genuinely don't know which approach I want to take. So um, gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is that you, you know, you're still relatively speaking early in your career which i think is fascinating right um and we kind of we all are it, it you know most of the people in the yeah. in, at least in the youtube content game i think that there's other people i mean even even zach he's younger than i am right yeah, he's mine. yeah which is crazy to think about right? you know it's um but but it's also a good thing where it's okay. like hey we are you know those people still have a, a long way to go like what what's possible on their end and you know everyone that you described has done some pretty incredible things in a mm -hmm. relatively short period of time. I think that what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the amount you can do in a year, you can do a lot in a year, but you generally, oh, you insane. underestimate or you overestimate what you can do in a year, but in a five year period, you way underestimate what you can do. I mean, oh, if, yeah. if you, if you were to go back and tell your, yourself four years ago where you'd be now do you think you would have believed that oh no way i was uh i, I almost flunked out of college um i i have my bachelor's degree but like just barely i have like a i think it's like a sub 2.0 gpa or something it's it's really 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 bad um like i i, I have a i'm a dino i have a degree in name only you know um yeah. and um yeah, like, like especially when you're raised your entire life, obviously, like, you know, just the education system, but also, I mean, you know, I come from an Indian family. Like, this is a, you know, education is a very, very important thing for us. Um, and, you know, you're raised your entire life to kind of put your self worth on your academic achievement. And then you just like, like fail so hard. It's easy to extrapolate that into just general self worth. Um, and, you know, my dad kind of told me, like, again, this, this kind of goes into the whole thing about like why Americans are such a hopeful people. Like this is a country where you can do all kind, you can flunk so badly in college and still just economically dominate um, in countries like India and countries like China because you know they have again one over a billion mouths to feed. That is just less 
less possible. Um, like you have the Gaokao in China, which determines a huge portion of your future. Um, India is not too dissimilar, honestly. Where yeah, there's placement from college, essentially. Like if you do well in college, you get placed into jobs rather than it's very interesting. Exactly. Um, whereas here, like I don't think anyone's ever checked a transcript. I think at most people have checked my background just to make sure I do have a degree. Um, so yeah, no, no, you're 100% right. I think, yeah, four years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have been like, I would probably, I'll probably be like in some $80,000 a year job, you know, somewhat happy with life. And, you know, I, I, at this point, if I may, if, if I was able to keep this income for the rest of my life, I could live the life I want to. I do not have to make any more money yearly. Um, I mean, I want to, but I don't need to. And it feels very good to be able to say at the age of 27, I've achieved um, the max income I will ever need to achieve. You know, I mean, adjusted for inflation, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very powerful thing. Um, you know, obviously that's really important. Um, you know, being able to, to reach maybe like a milestone like that. Um, maybe even more important is that I am currently speaking with a reigning iron analyst. Um, <laughs> and I, and I'm interested if, um, you know, if you have any, any thoughts on that experience and if you have any, any, anything you'd like to say to fellow or future competitors, anyone you'd like to call out, uh, anything along yes. those lines. Um, oh, I've always, I've, I've wanted to comment on this for a while. Um, so let me be extremely clear. Every single one of those competitors is technically more competent than I am. Like, like they, their code is better. They've been working in the industry for longer. Uh, and I'm not trying, it's not meant to brag. It's like, I, I, I genuinely do believe that they are all just like, technically way more competent than I am. Um, and this kind of goes into like, what, what is competition all about, right? If you're in sports, well, you know, it's fairly one dimensional. The fastest runner in the world is the fastest runner in the world. There's only one dimension this person can compete on. Um, even in basketball, right? Like, um, you know, the, the Golden State Warriors have like their strategy, you know, of, of just like three pointers over and over and over again, right? Like there are more dimensions to compete on, but you know, that too, only so many. In, in, a, in a regulated competition, there are only so many dimensions you can compete on. Um, so grinding is how you, you know, the Kobe method. Why aren't you here three hours early? Why aren't you leaving three hours late? I am going to be mad at you and be an asshole to you, you know? Um, Michael Jordan, same thing, right? Uh, I, I, I don't know if Steph Curry is like that or not, um, but I know Jordan and Kobe are. Um, when you are working in an unregulated competition, such as the one we were talking about in the Iron Analyst, right? Where it is really open-ended. You need, and, and you're competing against people who are better than you um, in, in the traditional metric sense, right? you need to find a way to stand out some, somehow else, right? Like, um, and so you, you break the competition down, right? Into like, what are the dimensions that can compete on? What, what is the eventual end product these people are looking at, right? And what I knew was it was a um, dashboard that was being presented as if I was presenting, presenting it to an executive team. The executive team could give two shits about how complicated the data munging was. They do not care. Uh, maybe you'll have a sympathetic CTO that's like, Oh yeah, I remember back when I was an engineer, this would have been really impressive, you know? Um, but the executive team cares about business value and how well do you present that business value? So that's why from the second I started that competition, I was like, okay, these people are all smarter than me. I can't outcode them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work with a small section of this data, um, not mention that I did, and then uh, uh, talk about, oh, future state, we'll add more. We, we can, this is a scalable solution. Future state, we can always add more data. Um, and create something that the executive team could perceive greater value being driven uh, derived from it's a product it has a very clear it always has to have a visual component to it if your if your presentation to an executive team doesn't have a visual component to it, it it's not going to work um, so
So yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the method I took, uh, took um, towards it. I, if, if you don't think you can outgrind other people, find ways to creative, creatively compete against them. So yeah, I, you know, something that, that I really took away from, from your work in that one, and don't take this the wrong way, mm-hmm. I didn't personally feel like you did anything like outrageously well, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything that you did was like, it was very good, but it, it wasn't something that, that like particularly stood out. Right. Right. But everything that you did was at a, a high quality and together the judge, you know, based on the criteria the judges were looking at, it was a lot um, like in aggregate better than, than what everyone else did. And I think that that's something that people don't realize is that you can specialize um, through a combination of skills or outcomes. I used this analogy earlier when we were talking um, like offline where if you're taking the GMAT, right, um, you have a, a verbal section or like an English section or like a, I forget what it is, and then a, um, a quantitative section. And you can be like, I think it's like 82nd percentile in both. Mm-hmm. But combined, that means you're in like the 95th percentile overall, right? And that's pretty impressive is that, yeah. you know, through these two things, if you're doing well in both, you're going to be better than the group. And, you know, like we were evaluated on a little bit on how you manage the data, the visualization and the explainability, the creativity of the analysis and the presentation. And across all those categories, you are strong. Again, not like unbelievable in right. any of them. Um, like, for example, Keith's presentation uh, was like, I wouldn't say it was Jobs-esque, but it was something <laughs> that was like fundamentally different from everyone right. else. Uh, or Zach's data engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fundamentally different. And for example, Luke's dashboard, I think was like very clear, mm-hmm. but you know, in terms of ingenuity and a lot of those things, they, they weren't necessarily, uh, as well-rounded. And so, you know, people get really, uh, you know, they get concerned with generalist versus specialist, but I think it is a form of specialization to be good in multiple areas at the same time, probably not all areas. I mean, as you mentioned, like the actual engineering that you did where you didn't use all the data. Exactly. Was super strong, yeah. But the other things that you did that were all very, like very strong were what really carried you to the victory there. And I, I think that mm-hmm. that is such like an, an overwhelmingly cool idea. I think if you really put your mind to it, you could be elite in all of those. And I wouldn't say that everyone else was a sig- significantly better in terms of technical skills. Uh, that's definitely not true. Um, there was, however, some controversy. Uh, obviously, Luke suggested that you were cheating by streaming and having people, uh, you know, in theory, mm-hmm. comment. Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? So I would say, okay, that that is a one hundred percent fair way of looking at it. Um, I don't believe I received any help in the comment section. What I will say is, I challenge anyone else to try and code and talk about their code while they're coding. Um, and tell me how much brain power that uses. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's mentally extremely taxing. Like it's, there's a, there's a, um, yeah, I, I, I think I'll leave it at that. It, it's mentally very taxing to explain your code while you're coding to people um, and, and still develop something useful, you know? So, oh, th- that, that would be my response to that. That makes a lot of sense. Is there uh, anyone, for example, in the future iron analyst competitions 
that you'd like to call out? Are there any changes to the rule set or things along those lines? I think perhaps in the next one, it would be, you know, we might have a head to head battle in true iron, iron yeah. chef um, style, but uh, any, any thoughts there? I think one more hour would be beneficial for people. Um, just, just have an extra hour. Cause I, I think that would lead to a end product that is more impressive for everyone. Um, easier for the judges to judge, easier for the audience to like understand what was the point of this. Um, I, yeah, I think that's one thing that I would do. And then I don't know. The, yeah. The size of the data set and everything was, I, I think that that's important to figure out. Okay. If I, because this is a, this is a real business scenario, right? Like, like I have had instances at my company where like a director comes and they're like, Hey, we need you to like, look, look through all the sales and like find something. I have a meeting in like three hours. Like, it wasn't some made up. I mean, it, it was a made up scenario, sure, but like the the basics of the scenario are it's something I've encountered in my you know real career, uh, and I'm very clear with my director. I'm like, okay, look, we have three hours to get this. My computer's only this powerful, so like you know we can do X, Y, Z, and this is what can be presented. Give the plan, and then you know. So I you know I think I think uh, the data set size was fine. Um, I don't know if you can standardize computers. That would be very interesting if the computers could be standardized between all the com- the competitors. Um, yeah, that plus one more hour. Standardizing the computers plus one more hour, maybe. Excellent. I I think we'd concede maybe an extra half an hour. And then uh, I, I personally liked the wrinkle of extra time if you were wearing bright data swag. That no. was a, I, I, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, and there's a nice sponsor engagement there as well. Again, is there anyone you want to call out? Is there anyone that, that you you uh, want to see compete next time? That, oh, that I want to see Ben compete next time. All right. I, I 100. I was surprised that Ben wasn't competing. I was like, I want to see Ben compete. I actually, I want to see um, uh, Tina compete as well. Um, but I would love to compete against Ben. That's uh, uh, that 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 would be beating Ben would be a nice feather in my cap. I've beaten Zach Wilson, the elite data engineer. Now uh, need to add Ben to my belt of victories. Amazing. Well, I think Tina said she she would compete uh, in the next one. Um, nice. You know, I, obviously we you know there there was not as much uh, female representation in the competitors this time around, but um, I think that will change in in a future Iron Analyst competition, nice. uh, which we're looking forward to. And you know, the feedback seems to be good, so I, I would I would expect we'll be able to do another one uh, uh, at some point in the in the next. Uh, Three to six months. <laughs> is it like the Bachelor? Do I get to be like like a like a judge in the next one or something? You can you can either be a judge or you can you know maybe we can do uh, something where it's multiple people take you on hmm. uh, rather than um, like you're the benchmark that people go against. Yeah. Um, and if you you know you, I mean it's in theory it's no different where you like outlast the competition, right? Um, but that would be. Uh, you know, that would be something. It's like, who does Shashank remain the iron analyst or does someone <laughs> else dethrone him? That, that could be yeah. kind of a cool, um, uh, kind of cool, cool approach there. No, I'm hoping we have to do it again. What would be really interesting is if like, say you got a, uh, um, cloud provider to sponsor the, um, competition and no one is allowed to write any code. You, you only have to do it using all the cloud tools that are available to you. So like, say you have AWS, right? Like they have their own version of Tableau. There's obviously S3 and there's EC2. And like, there's a, you can write SQL. Yeah, you can write SQL. Um, that's the only language you're allowed to use. Could be an interesting way to go about it. 
Could be. I would be so blown out of the water. Uh, granted, <laughs> I probably wouldn't compete because we need an announcer. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking at that data set and I was thinking of some fun stuff. I was actually very disappointed that um, that most people tried to stay within the data realm. Yeah. I thought there was a lot of really cool opportunities to find more general insights about the the job searching population. Like I would have loved to know on Indeed what the most popular like domains for work are, mm-hmm. you know, like, like something around that or something around um, like type of work by state that could be pretty interesting too, or region or, or those types of things. Um, but at the same time, I think we, we saw some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I definitely learned a lot on the engineering side after, after walk, walking through a lot of the people's code, which was, which was pretty impressive. Well, and like one other thing I'd like to mention is like uh, Mark, for example. So Mark was right next to me when I was like doing all this. Um, yeah, again, extremely smart guy, better engineer than I am for sure. One thing that he did that I, I no- took note of, right? There's a lot of unstructured data inside that uh, data set. And I specifically completely ignored that because I was like, there is no way I'm going to be able to organize this data and like actually get anything useful out of it in the time that I'm allotted. Um, and, you know, Mark just kind of went for it uh, and, and got pretty far into it. I was very impressed with how far he was able to get into it. But I, I think, the unstructured data was like a given the time constraint was an unrealistic thing, which is why I think an extra hour would allow for interesting things. Um, you know, the people who have like strong ML experience could get into the unstructured data and really tear that apart uh, by the end, you know? Yeah. You could make like a, a bot that like a GPT-3 bot that produces mm-hmm. job descriptions based on a prompt or something. That would be neat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very true. Very true. Um, Shashank, that was, uh, all, all I really had for you today. You have any additional thoughts you want to share? Uh, any, any final thoughts as reigning iron analyst champion? Um, you know what the world is, you know, again, recognizing the disadvantages that people might have, the world is your oyster. Um, uh, you like, life is meant to be taken by the horns. You know, you, you very like you banking, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, life is life is the bull market, and you're supposed to ride it all the way to major tendies. Um, but I heard a hilarious joke today. Uh, the, what's the difference between a, a, a an S and P uh, bear and a polar bear? There is none. Um, polar bears are afraid of temperatures rising. S and P bears are afraid of the S and P rising. And both their houses are going to be liquid soon, anyways. Um, <laughs> I was like, I, I wish I could think of stuff that intelligent. Um, no, but you know, there's a lot of opportunity in life, and I think you know, you know, te- tech is the great equalizer in many ways. In that, uh, not everyone can afford to spend two hundred thousand dollars on a medical education, but anyone can go onto YouTube, watch my channel, watch Ken's channel, learn all the content you need for free. Um, obviously, there's an advantage to going to a school, but you know, I've seen people who, you know, without educations have gotten into the industry. Like it is possible. Um, so you know, like like obviously, you know, being tech people, we do advocate for that. So. You know, take life by the by the horns. Uh, don't be afraid to you know uh, chase money to a healthy extent. Don't get obsessed with it, but don't be afraid to chase it uh, because you'd be surprised how many uh, how much misery is uh, exists in the world just because people don't have like the enough money to do just the basic stuff they need. Um, and this career gives an opportunity for you to do that. And you know, like uh, Ken was saying, it's a, it, I've seen a six x difference in the last four years. Um, there's basically nothing else I could have done that would have done that. Yeah. Amazing stuff. A very optimistic podcast. Thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me out of your day and, and providing such great wisdom. Thank you. Have a good one, Ken. 
Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pellaridi.